0: This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Justine Paradise.
1: And I'm Taylor Quimby.
0: Taylor, uh, can I tell you about my top non-meat burger experience?
1: Yeah, yeah, I love a good non-meat burger experience. Does everyone have this? (laughs) (laughs) This is truly a constant topic of conversation for me now.
0: Well, you've been a vegetarian. How long have you been a vegetarian?
1: Oh, a few years. Ever ever since our, our episode, The Meat Matrix, which people can listen to and find out how that went.
0: Yeah, I've essentially been a vegetarian. I I eat fish, so I guess technically pescatarian for Mm -hmm. a long time. But I'm going to say that the landscape of fake meat has changed recently. Oh my god, totally. I wouldn't even call them veggie burgers anymore. I think that they're in a new category. Well, so I decided to test this assertion. Uh, Last fall... My in-laws were visiting and my husband and I were making dinner and we decided let's grill out let's make burgers and we recently tried impossible burgers which we were like these are basically like meat this is just like a burger so my father-in-law eats a lot of meat I, I don't think he'd mind me sharing that he eats meat I think basically daily um, yeah and so we're like okay can he tell the difference so we're just we're not gonna tell them that these are impossible burgers we're just gonna pretend that they're regular. Beef. So we serve them. We're eating outside. It's a beautiful like October day, and we're like watching him really carefully. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like the vibe is a little <laughs> strange, probably at the dinner table. Um, and he, he's like into it. And like we we even get him guessing like where do you think the beef was raised? Uh, <laughs> but eventually he catches on, and he uh, we couldn't resist telling him, and he was really good natured about it. I would say that the experiment worked. Like he thought it was real meat. So. We we are officially in a new era of the fake meat burger, but part of me does wonder, like, what are we doing? Like, why are we why are we really trying to go so far to do this to replicate the the flavor of meat? Why is that so important?
1: You know, I used to ask the same question back when the only fake meat didn't really taste anything like meat. I think, uh, but now. I feel like I can have my cake and eat it, too, if I can mix a metaphor. Like, I can be a vegetarian who gets to eat a burger. And I, I feel like I should say I also have friends who eat meat but are regularly buying fake burgers. Like, the first time I went to a cookout with Beyond Burgers, all the meat eaters had eaten them all before I got there. So this is a, a conversation that's f- for more than just vegetarians.
0: So these themes are, of course, the subject of today's episode— We're featuring a podcast that if you haven't already heard it, we think that you'll love. It's called Gastropod.
1: Gastropod is about the science and history of food. But really, it's about all the weird, wonderful things that you never knew about what you eat every day. I've been listening for a few years, and I I love how comprehensive they are. They tackle a subject, Mm. and they tell you from soup to nuts so much about it. And, you know, they've been around for a long time. So whatever you... You know, really, almost any subject related to food, they have probably done an episode or two on that subject.
0: Like, for example, they've done topics like whether New York City bagels are better specifically because of the water, Mm. or, like, what scientists are discovering about the link between diet and Alzheimer's.
1: And the one we are playing today will tell you everything you've ever wanted to know about fake meat. All right, here it is. Everything and more.
2: I actually can't wait to try it. Right, uh, this is the weird part. I'm a Muslim. I never had pork. I never had like pork barbecue, but I love watching like pork barbecue shows on TV. You know, there's the so many different like barbecue challenges on Netflix or Hulu, and I'm I love them. I can't get enough.
3: What Amen is super excited to try, what he's never had in his life, is, yes, pork, but not the real thing. It's pork made from plants. Amen, Ismail is just one of our guests this
4: episode as we figure out the science and history of plant-based meat. Because we are Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history.
3: I'm Nicola Twilly And I'm Cynthia Graber. And this episode, we're going into the labs and test kitchens where the meat analogs of the future are now being invented. We have so
4: many questions. Starting with, will all these impossible burgers and
3: fungus-based chicken cutlets ever really replace meat? Are they better than meat? Are they better for the environment? Do they have a smaller climate change footprint? Are they better for you? Equally important, to be honest, do they taste good? Do they actually taste like the real thing?
4: And if so, how? What magical science can turn a plant into a bleeding burger? And will plant-based pork live up to Amen's dreams? This episode is supported by the Sloan Foundation for the Public Understanding of Science, Technology, and Economics, and by the Burroughs Welcome Fund for our coverage of biomedical research. Gastropod is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network in partnership with Eater.
5: So where you are right now is our R&D lab. And what we try to do here is really understand meat at a molecular level understand each of the components that drive each sensory experience.
3: Celeste Holt-Schittinger is the director of research at Impossible Foods. We visited Celeste at the Impossible Labs in Redwood City in California, and because it's still a pandemic, she obviously was masked. We masked up too, and we put on gowns and goggles, and then
4: Celeste showed us a room that basically just looked like a science lab. I mean, it was a science lab, full of weird-looking machines and test tubes and beakers.
5: So all around us, are the analytical instruments to be able to ask molecularly what is in meat and be able to identify that.
4: Impossible Foods was founded a decade ago by a Stanford University professor called Pat Brown. His research was focused on genes and cancer cells, but he'd been a vegetarian since the 1970s, and he was really bothered by how harmful to the environment industrial meat
3: production is. Celeste told us this is still central to the company's mission. As you'll hear, we also met with her before the pandemic when she wasn't masked.
5: So how we began was really with the vision that meat is not sustainable and it's the most destructive industry on the planet. The reason we eat it is not because of that destruction, it's because it's delicious. And so can we make meat
3: without compromise? We've talked about this before on Gastropod, but conventional meat in general, and frankly, cows in particular, are a source of a lot of environmental problems. Locally, they use a lot of water and cause a lot of pollution. They also contribute significantly to greenhouse gas emissions and to deforestation around the world. Scientists pretty much agree that we cannot consume as much
4: animal-based food as we do right now and stay within our planetary boundaries. We need to cut back pretty radically And so back in 2009, Pat Brown decided to take some time off from his regular research and try to figure out a solution to this livestock problem.
3: Remember, Pat is a distinguished scientist. And so he went about this quite scientifically. The first thing he had to do, and that he hired people like Celeste to help him do, was figure out what makes meat, meat. So some of the key aspects of meat is one, how
5: delicious humans think it is. It's craveable, it's juicy, it's fatty. There's those kind of roasted caramelly notes and one of the key aspects also is how meat changes upon cooking and how you handle it so in the raw state will be red in color and upon cooking it will change to brown it'll be soft and malleable and as you cook it it firms up and becomes chewy and juicy and the flavor is a kind of subtle metallic flavor and upon cooking it has that explosion of meaty characteristics So those are some of the key aspects of meat.
4: So that's the challenge. How do you reverse
3: engineer all of that? To start with, Celeste showed us a machine that basically smells meat and helps her team figure out what chemicals are making all those mouthwatering flavors.
5: It is very complex. There are hundreds of molecules. And then of those molecules, we can actually identify which ones are odor active and what that different smell is. And there's probably around 300 that have different, unique sensory experiences. None of them specifically smell like beef for a chicken. The combination is what gives you that sensory experience.
3: The same machine can also find those odor molecules in plants. The plant might not smell like that one particular odor molecule, but it contains it. And then Celeste and her team can extract that molecule from the plants and then combine a whole bunch together to smell like meat and so taste like meat. But even once they'd figured that out, They weren't done. So much of the deliciousness of meat is
4: also texture, how it feels in your mouth.
5: And so again, we look at meat at the molecular level and actually ask, what are those components driving the texture? What are those specific proteins? How do they change upon cooking? They're really denaturing and changing their forms. Can we measure those and then have that as a reference point and then go and screen and look at many different plant proteins? and look at what their properties are.
3: Celeste showed us a machine that can test texture too. They can hook up a bunch of different types of things. that can press down and cut through the meat in different ways. So
5: we could have even human teeth or we have razor blades. In each of those measurements, we can get different parameters and we'll screen lots of them. Yes, they really
4: do have human teeth on this machine. We
5: had someone who had a dentist as a father and so we got some teeth.
3: Getting it all just right isn't easy. It's taken Impossible years and many iterations before they released their first product. They did the first trials at Momofuku in New York in 2016. It was a burger, but it wasn't quite there yet. Celeste says, for one, it just kind of fell apart on the grill. Which the new and improved Impossible Burger
4: does not. And that's what's now available at supermarkets and restaurants around the country alongside Ground Impossible Beef. And then just this autumn, they debuted an
3: Impossible Chicken Nugget. And they're not the only ones trying to replace beef burgers and chicken nuggets in our hearts and on our plates. Another huge one in the market is Beyond Meat. They're even bigger than Impossible these days. They sell hamburgers and ground meat and sausages and chicken tenders. This plant-based meat business is hot right now. Meatless meats are
0: on a meteoric rise and is projected to become a US $1.5 billion industry by 2022. Fake meat is turning into
6: real profits. The stock market debut for Beyond Meat went beyond. The hottest IPO of 2019 so far. This stock has a cult-like following. It's going to sweep over the world.
7: Our mission is very simple. It's to completely replace animals as a food technology.
3: But as regular listeners to Gastropod will not be surprised to hear, this whole fake meat business is not actually a new movement.
6: Meat alternatives are not new at all. So in my research, I found that they have been basically a thing ever since people have stopped to eat meat for whatever reason, and ever since they're sort of thinking of not eating meat, there's ideas of having something that is like meat.
4: This is Malte Rodel. He's a researcher in environmental communication at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences, and he studies the history of plant-based meat replacements. He told us that these alt meats have gone through distinct phases of popularity
3: and innovation based on why people were eating them. As we talked about in our recent tofu episode, China has a really long history of cooking up foods that are meant to be meatish. For thousands of years, they've made meat replacements out of tofu and out of wheat gluten, which is called seitan. And seitan has a kind of meat-like chewy texture. These plant-based proteins weren't necessarily always used
4: as a meat analog, but they could be a replacement for people who didn't eat meat, which was mostly for religious reasons.
6: So there are certain streams of Buddhism that reject the idea of eating animals. And so there's always this tension between if we can't eat animals, we need to have something similar, especially to wean oneself off. Soy-based foods were slow
3: to catch on in America, as we mentioned in our episode, but in the late 1800s and
6: early 1900s, a whole bunch of new fake meat products sprouted onto the scene. When we see a commercialization of meats, replacements, meat alternatives, through a person called John Harvey Kellogg, that's the brother of the person who made the Kellogg's company.
4: This time, the motivation was health. And yes, regular listeners will have already encountered our old friend John Harvey, Mr. Cornflake's brother. He had a very unusual health philosophy, and he ended up running a sanatorium founded by Seventh-day Adventists in Michigan. Part of his whole thing was that people should eat bland grain-based foods, not fatty or sweet things or meat.
3: So then that left a question for
4: him. What should they serve at the sanatorium? No problemo. John Harvey invented some exciting new meat
6: replacements. So when we look at these different products, then they're usually made of nuts or of oats. And actually, nuts were not popularly eaten before this time. So nuts were actually popularized within this food movement as something legitimate and nice to eat.
4: It's not that nobody had ever eaten nuts before, but they weren't actually popular in Anglo cuisine in the 1800s. They'd fallen out of fashion during the Renaissance and didn't come back into vogue until Kellogg gave them a boost.
6: These products then have fancy names like nut cream, meatos, veola, nut vego, nut meat, or nuttin. And some of these explicitly refer to sort of what they're made of, like nuts, others refer more explicitly to what they're supposed to do, like nutton is sort of a, is a fake to, to mutton.
3: These nut and oat concoctions, actually, and surprisingly, became somewhat popular within a relatively limited community, but these enthusiasts brought protos and nutton to people around the world. The foods became particularly popular in England in the early 1900s because people were going through a health craze there, too.
4: Nuttos and protos were described in their marketing materials as, quote, vegetable meats. In one ad, a Nutto's fan said, It tastes like all the naughty things, but has the advantage of being digestible and wholesome. According to Malta, people at the time would braise brotos, mash it into a cutlet, bake it with macaroni, and even sub it into a jambalaya.
3: But as popular and delicious as Nikki just made these vegetable meats sound, they were really only eaten by a very niche group. At least that was true until the First World War in the UK. That's when vegetable meat found an even bigger market.
6: Meat alternatives were seen as a vital way to support the wider population. Especially in the UK, this was a much larger problem than in the US.
4: Meat was really tightly rationed, especially in the UK.
8: Meat, a perishable commodity, long-term in production, is one of the hardest food contracts to fill.
4: Bill must get along on odds
1: and ends of meat substitutes in his sandwiches, but he doesn't grumble if he gets plenty of tea... Strong enough for a mouse to trot on.
4: Before, plant-based meat substitutes had been eaten mostly by people who didn't want to eat meat for ethical, religious, or health reasons. But during both world wars, plant-based protein found a new audience. People who would have rather eaten real meat, but there just wasn't enough. These protein substitutes were either mixed in to make real meat stretch further or shaped into a straight up replacement like the soy sausages that were
3: notorious in World War II. Even though we didn't have the same rationing that the UK did, apparently soy sausage was a thing here, too, during World War II. It was called soy and the New York Times at the time suggested serving it with, quote, an appetizing tomato or parsley sauce. After the Second World War... There was a little bit of a protein panic. The World Health
4: Organization put together a protein advisory group in the 50s, and in the late 60s, they came out with a report on how to avert the coming protein crisis. There was a real fear that there wasn't going to be enough protein to feed the world which
3: is what led to the next wave in plant-based meat innovation. This protein panic inspired the rediscovery of tofu in the U.S., which is a story we tell in our tofu episode. But this worry
4: over protein wasn't just a hippie thing. Big ag and industry were investing
3: in plant-based proteins, too. In 1960, a big food processing company called Archer Daniels
6: Midland invented something I used to see in health food stores called TVP. Textured vegetable protein spun protein. So there's lots of different names that pop up especially in the late 50s, early 60s of technologies that are able to make this protein isolate into strings. And these strings then are supposed to resemble the actual texture of meat as opposed to merely being a nutritious thing. So what we've seen until then was more remaking the nutritious content, maybe making remaking the savoriness of what meat Was like. And now from the 60s onwards, we see more of a shift towards the stringiness, the texture of meat.
4: TVP was brown and looked like sort of freeze dried granules. It was something vegetarians put into tomato sauce as like a bolognese sort of thing when I was a kid. And to be honest, I thought it was pretty grim back then.
6: Yeah, so TVP was in the beginning, I think, faced with a lot of skepticism. It's a bit weird, right, to have these dry chunks of something that you then boil a bit, hydrate, and then they become a bit stringy, but don't taste like much. They always have this They still do, I think, have this bit of an off taste. But over the next
3: few decades, companies that were marketing meat substitutes, mostly to vegetarians, they invented products that were an improvement over TVP and that you can still find today. They were supposed to taste like meat. There's Boca burgers and chicken and Morningstar Farm sausage patties and lots of others. These meat replacements were not bad, but I say as someone who has tried them but who
4: also eats meat, you wouldn't mistake them for meat. They really were for vegetarians. They weren't a replacement for a burger if you actually ate meat. But the new wave, today's Impossible and Beyond burgers, that's different.
6: So the new boom we're seeing in the last couple of years is related to what some academics and some industry people would describe as high moisture Meat Alternatives.
3: High Moisture Meat Alternatives sound so delicious. But strangely, these new products are delicious if you ignore the name. High Moisture is not on the label. No. My frozen package of Ground Impossible says, quite proudly, in bold, all flavor, no cow. And it continues, burgers, tacos, lasagna, used like ground beef in your favorite recipes. So what
4: is this big breakthrough? How have these companies managed to create a convincingly meaty thing from planty things? Coming up after this break. First time we had a sensory panel,
5: consumer panel of us versus ground beef, it was like a 90% preference for the ground beef from cows. Our current product is about equal. So some people, they can tell the difference, but on a preference-based and a liking base, it's very at parity. And we're just early
3: stages. The cow is not really evolving. We are. What's allowed companies like Impossible to evolve is advances in science, particularly in the field of high-moisture extrusion, as Malta mentioned. This kind of extrusion is the process of taking proteins and heating them up and applying pressure to them and pushing them through a particular form. There was a lot of innovation in extrusion tech in the 80s. And those advances meant better texture in your alt-meat.
4: But it's not just tech improvements driving this new boom. In the past, people innovated in alt-meat for religious reasons or health reasons or out of a panic about
3: protein. Today, the motivation is climate panic. That's what's driving this new wave. That's what motivated the folks at Impossible. And Celeste says they hope to convert meat eaters with their new high-moisture burgers that use new extrusion technology. She says these can satisfy any and all eaters, not just vegetarians.
5: So in terms of our protein toolbox, we studied couple hundred different proteins and characterize them. We have our potato protein, which is really, it gels upon cooking and allows for that firming. And then we have soy protein.
3: Which gets elongated and transformed in the extruder, and it becomes chewy and a little porous so it can become juicy. Version 1.0 used a wheat-based
4: protein, which they liked, but it didn't have the same nutritional values as meat-meat,
3: so they swapped it out for the soy protein. But making Impossible Burgers isn't like making tofu, they aren't using soy as soy.
5: A lot of times we think of just, okay, different proteins, does that mean pea and soy? But actually, soy has hundreds of different proteins. And if you fractionate them, each of them have different properties.
3: They basically just chemically break soy apart into its different protein molecules. They figure out which ones are stretchy and which ones are chewy and so on.
4: And with all these different protein molecules all individually isolated, they can then recombine just the ones they want in the exact
3: ratios they want. Over the development process, they also swapped out the fat that they use. At first it was all coconut oil because that's solid at room temperature like beef fat is, but they changed that to a mixture of coconut and sunflower oil to get just the right meat-like like nutrition profile. Okay,
4: so there's fat, there's protein, there's the right combination of hundreds of flavor molecules, and there's additives like xanthan gum and methyl cellulose holding it all together. But the real star of the show?
5: I want to get you at least a spoon. I think it's important that you at least taste the heme. let's
3: took out a small mason jar of a deep burgundy-colored liquid. It looked pretty much like it was full of blood.
5: Basically dip your spoon in, don't don't really need to take much.
4: Cheers. Cheers.
3: Mm, Salty and metallic.
4: It's actually surprisingly much better than I was prepared for. Yeah. I don't mind it.
3: It leaves a pretty bad aftertaste in your mouth though.
4: More metallic on
3: the aftertaste I think. I don't know why. Yeah I have to say now it tastes a lot grosser. Now it tastes like blood in my mouth. Yeah. Oh, like I'll just it after I
4: had gum surgery. This is what my mouth tasted like. Celeste told us that this Heme stuff we were sipping. This was Impossible's key breakthrough, and it's where she's devoted most of her efforts. It all started because they realized that one important element of meat
3: flavor is something called a heme protein. Heme, and the iron in heme, is what makes blood bright red, and the molecule transports oxygen and helps us breathe, and actually it's key to all plant life, too. So we discovered that that was essential, and that actually, upon cooking,
5: reacts with simple nutrients. Amino acids, the building blocks to protein, sugars, and vitamins, and that creates that explosion of flavor. So, without the heme, you have a kind of just subtle, savory flavor, a bit more bland in characteristics, and you don't have those essential,
3: meaty, beefy, roasted notes. So, heme makes animals taste meaty, but all forms of life have heme. So, Celeste and our colleagues had to find a good plant source.
5: Our very first projects was actually pulling out root nodules, because that's where it was in the soybean, and extracting that out. We quickly learned that was not efficient and actually releases lots of carbon in that process. So is there a more efficient way to do that? So what we're using is yeast.
4: These yeast are genetically engineered to make the heme in vast vats.
5: So they start white um, and then when they start producing the heme, they turn bright red in color.
3: These vats of heme-producing yeast have caused Impossible to get a little bit of flack. They're the only ones who use heme, and some consumers have been turned off by the fact that Impossible uses a genetically modified yeast to make that heme. It's true that the yeasts have been modified, but this is super common. Most cheeses, even the really high-end ones, they're made with enzymes that are produced by genetically modified yeasts. A lot of vitamins are made by GM yeasts. Medicines are too. And anyway, you're not even eating the yeast, you're eating the heme it makes. The version of heme
4: that the yeasts produce ends up working exactly like the meat version of heme. It reacts with all the other carbohydrates and proteins and fats in the burger to create those meaty flavors, and it changes color the same way meat does too, from red and bloody
3: to well done and browned. Impossible and a lot of their competitors took their first stab at replacing meat by making a perfect Hamburger, because Americans eat a lot of hamburgers.
4: Which is why it smells like a burger joint when you walk into the impossible test kitchen. Incredible how quickly it gets your saliva, um, like your juices flowing to smell meat. (laughs) In the kitchen, they have equipment for every different way you could cook meat, so they can see how their impossible version stacks
3: up. They have steam ovens and skillets and backyard grills. They'd made us some burger sliders on a mini pretzel bun. Those were delicious. But they particularly wanted to show off a new product they were just getting ready to introduce. Oh my god, <laughs> it smells like pork. Yeah. It's amazing.
4: This is Impossible's brand new product. Right now it's only available in Starbucks,
3: at Momofuku in New York, and in Hong Kong although it's rolling out more widely soon. Hamburger and ground beef was first. Then for pork, they had to tweak the heme and also the texture proteins. They got rid of the potato for the pork, so it could be a little bouncier, and they tweaked the fat content, basically a lot of tweaking. In the test kitchen, one of the chefs, Nathan, had encased
4: some seasoned impossible pork in pastry like a sausage roll. He gave us each one, served with a spicy tomato sauce, and we dug in.
3: So I... Don't have as much experience with a pork sausage roll as you do. It's very tasty. How would you say it's different?
4: I would say right now the texture is not, it's a little softer than pork still. Um, and a little more, I don't want to say mush-like because that sounds bad, but it's a little softer than, than actual pork. The flavor when you're, is, is perfect. The
3: flavor is amazing.
4: The flavor is perfect. The texture is very close, but not quite.
3: As I mentioned, I don't have a lot of experience with sausage rolls, and a big reason for that is that I'm Jewish, and I grew up keeping kosher at home, and I never ate much of pork at all growing up, which is pretty common for Jews and Muslims.
2: No pork ever. Unknowingly. I may have unknowingly had it. You know, I grew up in America, grew up on the East Coast. You know, I've had pizza that had like pepperoni on it that I like peeled off and if I like missed a piece maybe I don't know but uh I'm I'm going to say no.
4: This is Eamon Ismail again. He's a staff writer at Slate. He's a Muslim and like he says he has never knowingly consumed pork.
2: It's so taboo more than anything else, you know, you could meet a Muslim who will drink and have sex before marriage and break a lot of the rules, but pork is the one thing that I think So many Muslims, no matter where you go in the world, would be off the table, off the menu, out of their minds.
3: We talked about this in our pig episode. Both Muslims and Jews have a lot of laws that we follow, but not eating pork, for many historical reasons, has become one of the most important laws of all. If you want to hear more about it, do listen to The Whole Hog. But basically, eating pig is super taboo. But what about impossible pork? Is that taboo? (laughs) This is a tough question to answer. Jewish perspective, frankly, for a lot of Jews, sure, as long as there's no actual pork, no problem. But probably the biggest Orthodox group that certifies food as kosher, they've called fake bacon bits kosher. They've even certified impossible sausage as kosher. But impossible pork went, weirdly to me, a step too far for them. I guess it's because bacon and sausage are ways of preparing meats. Like I've had duck bacon and turkey sausage, but pork is pig and so to that orthodox group the word pork impossible pork made it not kosher i'm like i
2: get that because of the the social weight that some of these products have just the names you know um pork isn't just a, a meat product for a lot of muslims it's been this uh, this tool that was used to to shove in our faces that people hate us you know there's been how many different accounts where people have thrown bacon at Muslims or left it on the door handles of mosques or even left pig heads. But
4: even though Eamon can definitely understand not wanting to eat even plant-based pork, he's personally pretty stoked to
2: try the impossible version. And and it almost feels like a loophole. It's like, cool, now I get to try pork without it actually being pork. So God is not going to have a problem with it because I'm not eating that same meat that God told us not to eat. So... You know there there are going to be people who are going to say, no, like if you're eating it, you, you, it's like it, so you're, you're you, it's as if you are eating it. I don't know, man. I think God is very specific in Islam and in the Quran about don't eat pig, and this isn't pig. it's not, it just isn't, right? And on their website, by the way, they say it's even better, so who knows? Who knows?
3: Amen wrote about his excitement and the debate within the Muslim community for Slate. And as a result, even though Impossible Pork isn't available yet in grocery stores, when we talked to him, he told us the company was sending over a package for him to try at home with a Jewish friend of his. And if you listen through the credits, we actually checked in with Amen to see what he thought of this very
4: exciting first Pork-like experience.
3: So, so far, all these new products we've been talking about are made from plants. But during the protein panic of the 60s, people started looking at all sorts of ways to create new forms of edible protein. They were looking at making it from algae or from fungi
6: or from bacteria, basically single-cell creatures. Some bacteria, some single cellular organisms that feed on some matter. And then in this process, they obviously grow, they, they procreate, and they become more biomass. And the idea behind single-cell proteins is that this biomass... Becomes edible. Sounds delicious, right? Who
4: doesn't love bacterial biomass? But actually, one of the best known alt meats came out of this line of research corn. That story next. This all started with one of the UK's biggest food companies, Rank Hovis McDougall. They make very iconic British brands like Hovis and Mother's Pride Bread and Mr. Kipling Cakes.
6: So what happened in this um, company was that they were making bread and they had a lot of byproducts from bread making. And they were looking for a bacterion or fungi or something that would transform these starches that were a byproduct of their manufacturing process into biomass. And so they went to lots of different places around the UK and took soil samples, and after a couple of years, they decided that there was one fungi that they had found somewhere that grew really well on these starches. The fungi is called Fusarium venenatum. It's closely related to a fungus that
3: is a huge problem for wheat, and at first they thought it was, in fact, this very wheat disease. But it turns out the fungus they found was an entirely new species that nobody had ever identified before. Back at the lab, they grew this fungus in tanks,
4: and when they harvested it, It apparently looked like uncooked pastry and had a, quote, very mild, almost bland, wheaty mushroom flavor. And best of all, it was kind
3: of stringy. Initially, they were going to chop it up and make it into granules of alt meat, kind of like TVP. But people at the company realized it had a good texture on its own for things like fake chicken patties.
4: Well, this makes it sound super easy. Find a novel random soil fungus, grow it, form it into patties. Hey, presto. But it wasn't like that at
6: all. To make something, to make some generally new food item like they did out of fungi is something really difficult. That overall took them, I think, almost 10 years from the first idea in the late 60s towards sort of having a product. And then it took them another 10 years to get the approval as a food item.
4: A 20-year overnight success story.
6: At first,
3: the company sold corn to supermarkets. It was used in Sainsbury Savory Pies. One was a chicken-style corn and mushroom puff pastry pie, and the other was a potato-topped veggie and beef-style corn pie. This was in the 1980s. I remember it launching. For the first few
4: years, while people got used to it, you could only buy it in ready meals. But then they launched corn cubes and ground corn in the 90s, and then in the 2000s, corn finally
3: made it stateside. Like me. We actually buy corn regularly. My partner Tim loves to have corn fake chicken patties as a sandwich for lunch. In a patty, it works pretty well. It's a little mushy compared to chicken, but it's good. But still, corn isn't making juicy ribeyes.
4: It can only do chopped steak bits. And Beyond and Impossible are also stuck with ground meat for now. But that's not all of meat. Whole cuts are still a challenge. Ground is part of the way, but we need entire
5: muscle tissue. And so there are new challenges to be able to do that, on the, especially
4: on the texture side. Basically, they haven't figured out how to make their protein strands long enough and stiff enough to mimic the fibers in a whole cut of muscle meat.
3: Yet. But there's a company that thinks it's met this challenge.
7: Here in the near term, we'll be coming out with a crispy cutlet and a, a steak product, a whole cut steak product. Uh, but then after that, I mean, really, the the options are endless. We can produce things like pork products, like fish, jerky.
4: This is Tyler Huggins. He's the co-founder and CEO of Meaty Foods, M-E-A-T-I.
7: Well, meaty is a type of meat uh, made out of mushroom roots. Simple as that. Like
3: Pat at Impossible, Tyler wants to save the environment. He started working in forestry, but then he went back to school for a Ph.D., and he decided he wanted to use fungi to try to solve major environmental problems. He realized that a big environmental problem he could try to fix was the meat one. He checked out corn, of course.
7: You know, honestly, I think it's one of the the better um, alternative meats that are out there. But we just wanted to use modern approaches, more simple processing, higher nutrition, in order to make you know, sort of the, the version 2.0, if you will.
4: Just because this British company had figured out how to grow corn at scale doesn't mean it was easy, which is why they didn't really have any rivals in the fungal meat space till recently.
7: It's very rare, to actually grow mycelium for its biomass. And that's something, you know, there was no books written on how to do this. And we had to invent the process from the ground up.
3: Tyler spent his PhD working on this problem. And then years after his PhD too, he and his co-founder had to figure out the process, of course. But then they also had to find the right microbes. So they held some auditions for quite a few of them.
7: I mean, thousands, you know, it was, it was really a matter of um, setting the, the guardrails that we we're looking for. So, you know, scalability, um, high yields, speed of growth, bland flavor, color, really good carbon conversion efficiency, and then ultimately nutrition and and safety.
4: The winning fungus has a super high protein content, and it's what nutritionists call a complete protein with all the amino acids humans need. This particular fungus also doesn't make any chemicals that could be toxic. A lot of fungi make poisons in order to compete with
7: other organisms in their environment. Our particular strain, it's the way it lived in the environment is to grow super fast after fires. And so it didn't need to, it actually doesn't even have the capability of producing mycotoxins. Um, that's something very sort of unique to our particular, our strain. And then because of that, we can keep the whole biomass. You can consume the whole biomass and it takes minimal post-processing. So essentially we just harvest it gently form it, flavor it, and that's it. The fact that it grows so fast is incredibly important for how quickly
3: they can make their alt meat.
7: When I say fast growing, it's actually one of the fastest growing organisms on the planet. Essentially, we get like a seed, a starter. You can think of it just in like a a small glass. Once we get it growing, we add it into our uh, tank, which it looks like a, a beer brewing tank. Literally overnight, 16 to 12 hours, the whole thing's full. It nearly doubles its biomass under about every hour to two hours, which is just extremely fast.
3: Doubling its biomass just means literally doubling itself. The biomass is just the mass of fungi growing like a goop. Tyler told us it looks like applesauce. Tyler wouldn't tell us what this fabulous fungus's scientific name is, but
4: he did tell us what they call it (laughs) in-house.
7: We like to call it Rosita because Another cool feature is, under certain conditions, it smells like roses.
3: The fact that Rosita grows as a kind of stringy biomass is what makes it so useful as a meat replacement.
7: Again, the huge advantage is we already have this physical structure, right? Uh, Already very, very similar to animal-based muscle structure. So for us, we don't have to add a lot of complex ingredients like many of our competitors. And so you have these like 3D microscopic hair strands that are growing in every dimension. Then essentially you realign those fibers into different orientations in order to mimic the different muscle structures. And that's how we're able to mimic things like steak and chicken and fish and pork all from the same ingredient.
4: Again, the details were secret, but Tyler says the processing is pretty minimal. It's not extruded. He doesn't have to break it down. In fact, Rosita is alive till right at the end,
3: even through the marination step. Tyler says at that stage, even on its own, even not trying to make it taste like chicken or steak, it tastes pretty good.
7: Oh, it's great. Now, when we first started, you know, some of the people that we were hiring were like, what are we doing again? Is this really good? And so I would literally just pull it out of the tank, squeeze the water out of it, throw it in a pan with butter, and it is delicious. And it's kind of like calamari at that point.
4: Right now, Rosita feeds on sugar and salts. Tyler says they've already done a bunch of research on feeding it starchy waste from brewing, for example. But for simplicity's sake, to start getting meaty on the market as soon as possible, they're rolling with table sugar for now.
7: You know, we have a current ranch, we call it, that's working right now. And that'll produce the meat equivalent of a cow uh, essentially overnight. And then we're we already broke ground on what we're calling the mega ranch and that will produce you know somewhere upwards of 35 million pounds of product a year but ultimately again that's that's not even that much it's drop in the bucket so we're hoping to get our Giga Ranch off the ground sometime, or at least started early next year. And that'll produce hundreds of millions of pounds. And these are all custom-designed, based like big breweries.
3: Meaty isn't on my local grocery shelf yet, but they're going to be launching their crispy chicken cutlet this year. And they sent us each two cutlets to try. Tim and I cooked them up and tasted them before we got more elaborate and turned them into chicken parm. Oh, it smells like chicken. It smells
1: like chicken, yeah. Really uncanny. Wow.
3: Oh, my God, that's really good.
1: <laughs> that's frighteningly realistic. <laughs> I haven't eaten chicken in so many years, but that's like, yeah, that's the that's the thing.
4: Meanwhile, in Los Angeles, Jeff and I sat down for a fungus cutlet and some green salad.
1: Well, yeah, it's funny. I mean, when you say fungus-based meat, instantly there's a certain skepticism that comes into the picture. But it looks like a large breaded chicken McNugget that I would have had at, uh, public school. If you didn't tell me what it was, I would have thought it was kind of a slightly soft, very tender chicken cutlet. And I I wouldn't, definitely would not have guessed that it was made from fungus and it doesn't
6: taste bad.
4: That's pretty nice. It tastes like chicken nugget,
6: honestly. I can
4: get behind that. So yeah, on the flavor and texture side of things, team alt meat seems to be doing pretty well. But that's not the only area for comparison. Beyond taste, how do these plant patties and fungus cutlets stack up to their real meat analogs? Are they really better for the environment? Better for your health? The best of all?
8: Yeah, I mean, some of the languages, I find it quite shocking. Or, you know, they're, they're, they're going for that wow factor as, you know, this is, this is the solution for our future. This is going to solve a big portion of our climate change problem or completely overhaul the need for industrial animal farming.
3: Rachel Santo is a researcher at Johns Hopkins, and she's one of the authors of a paper that takes a full life cycle look at meat versus these new alternative meats on the market. She was also on our Dig for Victory episode about urban farming.
4: Obviously, there's a lot of nuance in a comparison like this. And one thing to know is that Rachel and her colleagues used industrially raised meat as their benchmark on the health comparison Because that is 99% of
3: the meat consumed in America. Rachel also created kind of an average of these meat alternatives because there aren't enough studies to tease out major differences between soy or pea or fungus-based meat yet. She says more research is needed, but there's enough out there that she can make some generalizations.
8: From a nutritional perspective, most plant-based substitutes are pretty similar in terms of the amount of calories, protein, and iron that they have in comparison to the meat products they're intended to substitute, they tend to include more sodium compared to unprocessed meats. You know, there might be slight differences or increases in certain types of nutrients or breakdowns of nutrient profiles. The overall implications of that for health outcomes is less clear.
4: One thing that plant-based meats would seem to have going for them is that they're based on plants. So you would think that they would have all the known health benefits of plants and none of the known health issues that come with eating red and processed meats. But Rachel said that's not necessarily the case. Take heme. Impossible is so excited about how heme makes their plant patty
8: taste. But it's processed in the body virtually identically as heme protein that's found in Red and processed meat. And that is actually one of the ingredients that's linked to a lot of the health outcomes, the negative health outcomes associated with red and processed meat.
3: That said, animal heme is the most bioavailable form of iron. And so this plant based, animal like version might be good for people who are anemic or for pregnant women. When it comes to the
4: potato and soy parts of the patty, we know that eating those plants is good for you. But Rachel said, what we don't know is whether those benefits still apply. After Impossible has broken down all these plants and processed them to isolate out and recombine all the different proteins.
8: We do know that highly processed foods or ultra processed foods are associated with, you know, increased weight gain and obesity. And so there are are concerns that are these similar to other highly processed foods or is there something different about them that would make them more nutritious or potentially still beneficial even if they are highly processed. So there's a lot to tease out there. What companies like Impossible say is they've basically
3: matched the nutritional profile of meat. But even if the nutritional panel on the side of the box looks the same, a lot more research is needed to know if our bodies digest those nutrients the same way and how healthy these foods really are. Okay, so the health question is complicated. There's a lot we
4: don't know. At the moment, we can't say for sure that these alt meats are better,
8: worse, or the same for you as actual meat. But when it comes to the environment, that should be simpler, right? Conventionally farmed beef has the highest environmental impacts on almost every metric you look at. So if that's your point of reference, almost any alternative is going to look sustainable or more sustainable by comparison.
3: If you compare these alt meats to other meat meats, the benefit isn't as dramatic. Basically, the greenhouse gas reduction and land and water use reduction when you eat an alt meat burger is a huge improvement over industrial beef, but it's a slightly less dramatic improvement compared to industrial chicken.
4: For this part of the paper, Rachel and her colleagues did compare the full range of meat production systems. And their research suggests even the lowest emissions beef is still higher than the highest emissions plant-based substitute. Other studies suggest that beef raised on well-managed pastures might have a smaller footprint than some plant-based meats. Again, we can't say for sure right now for every specific situation. But definitely, pretty much anything and everything is better than industrial beef, which, just to repeat myself, accounts for 99% of the vast quantities of beef that Americans
3: are eating. One concern that's been raised is that these alt-meat products are still using monocultures of soy and peas and sugar that are based in industrial agriculture. Like, soy uses a lot of herbicides and pesticides and is generally not the greatest crop from an environmental perspective— But Rachel still says that even taking that into consideration, these products overall are an environmental improvement.
4: And there are other benefits of plant and fungus meats that are harder to quantify, but very real. The jobs making these meat substitutes are better and safer than jobs in slaughterhouses. When you aren't dealing with live animals, then you aren't dealing with E. coli that can cause outbreaks of food poisoning and kill people or make them sick. And you aren't giving animals antibiotics and contributing to the big antibiotic
3: resistance problem we have right now. Okay, so overall, these alternatives seem pretty clearly like an improvement over industrial meat in a lot of ways. But now for one of our big questions, are these companies doing what they set out to do? Are they convincing meat eaters to eat less meat?
8: Right now, to be honest, From the data that I've seen, it doesn't look like there has been a a substantial substitution effect happening. In
4: America, at least, meat sales aren't going down. In fact, the exact opposite. Even in the past few years, while all these new alt meats have been launching... Per capita meat consumption has increased every single
3: year. Celeste told us that Impossible has done a number of surveys of their consumers, and about 90% of them have eaten meat in the past month. But it doesn't seem like they're necessarily replacing a meat hamburger with a plant-based burger. Both alt-meat and meat-meat consumption is up, so maybe they're just choosing an Impossible burger when otherwise they might have eaten a salad. That
4: said, these alt-meats are still new. Meaty hasn't even launched. So maybe meat eaters will end up reducing their meat-meat consumption in favor of
3: alt-meat. Right now, it's too soon to tell. There's no real evidence that's happening yet. But the growth of both markets shows that people just love meat. Malta says that's obvious even just from the advertising.
4: The very idea of a meat substitute sort of has the idea that meat is essential built into it. Meat must be super important. Otherwise, why would you need a substitute for it?
6: So, what all this talk about meat alternatives in this way does is that it firstly reproduces ideas that meat eating is an essential thing in society and that we should all do it to sort of keep a happy life together. On the other hand, what this does to vegetarian food is sort of it, it diminishes it a bit. It says, this is second-class food. It's not the same thing to cut up a cauliflower and roast it, but you need to make it cauliflower wings so that it becomes socially acceptable to eat them. So I I think of it in some ways as, as a colonization of the vegetarian space, of vegetarian eating practices. But what about cauliflower? Cauliflower on its own, especially if you roast it, it is
3: pretty great. So is lots of vegetarian food.
8: But we're not limited to a choice between conventional meats and plant-based substitutes. There are also less processed legumes. You can eat soybeans and lentils and beans directly. And those have even clearer health benefits and environmental benefits too. So while we focus this paper on comparing the particular meat uh, and meat substitutes, it's important to not forget the bigger picture that you can also just eat whole legumes and you'll be <laughs> you'll be healthier and be protecting the environment more with that choice as well. In fact, when Rachel
4: and her colleagues did their analysis, eating beans and veggies worked out better for the environment than any of the alt meats. And we already know they're great for your health. But
3: also, maybe these meat substitutes don't need to be meat substitutes. Tyler at Meaty thinks his company's new product can and maybe should be its own thing. The meaty fungus Rosita is super efficient at creating protein from sugar. and salts, even more efficient than plants. And Tyler would love us just to buy and eat Rosita.
7: I think for now, we'll have to give customers some sort of association. So whether it's the meaty, crispy cutlet, the meaty steak, so they kind of already know what experience they're going to have. And I imagine we do that for a few years. But ultimately, I think the goal is to be a whole new category of protein. So when you go to get your burrito or your taco or whatever it is, they ask you, you know, you want your beef, your chicken or your meaty.
4: To Tyler, this version of meaty where it's pretending to be a chicken cutlet, that's just 1.0. The future is wide open.
7: I feel like this is like when wine was first invented. It was like, oh, this was pretty good, right? But now look at how many wines we have and the complexity and the science and the brilliance of, of what's created. I think we're just getting started. There's there's different types of umami and flavor and textures and you know being able to blend it with different things i mean this is just the start of something i think you know, when my daughter is older, we'll, we'll just be blown away that we live without this sort of you know type of food in our diet.
3: I look forward to having these new protein sources as regular options alongside even meat. Because frankly, Nikki and I and Tyler all think there is a place for meat in our agricultural system. Not industrial meat and certainly not nearly as much meat as we eat today. But we don't think meat and dairy will ever totally go away. And maybe they shouldn't.
7: You know, my my dad has a bison ranch. I grew up, you know, in cattle country so I, I have a very high bar for good quality protein and and more and more of an emphasis on, you know, ethically produced protein. And so that that's never been my goal of trying to replace regenerative ranching and good practices. But just understanding that we're trying to feed ten billion people, we're going to need as many sources as we can, and those that are done, you know, sustainably and ultimately um, at a price point that is accessible to everybody is is what's most important to me.
4: This global view, Rachel says it's important when we think about the future of protein, because we're not just talking about hamburger-loving Americans needing to cut back here. That's only part of the story. The
8: more wealthy a country becomes, the more meat it typically eats. There are some people that have actually argued that that's the value or the role of meat substitutes is really to serve as the filler for that increased demand that we know is coming from other countries seeking to increase their meat consumption for individual consumers or having growing populations. And so some people say that's what this is is to fill that gap so we don't increase our overall impacts as much.
4: Obviously, there's some issues with saying that as people in developing countries become wealthier, then they can have fake meat instead of real meat. In fact, it's arguably much more fair for developed nations to give up meat. But Rachel's point is that The demand is growing, and if we don't do anything about it, our appetite for meat will destroy the planet.
3: No matter who they're marketed to and how they're supposed to save the planet, I have to admit, I do actually really like to eat these alt meats. I'm not giving up lentils or cauliflower, but I kind of think there's a place for these foods too. Maybe they can also help serve as a transition to more vegetable and bean-based meals, especially if we do what we should be doing and create a lot more regulations around industrial meat production.
4: Yeah, it's great having a consumer-based solution to the meat problem, but we actually need government to step up too, so that the true environmental cost of meat is part of its price. But stepping off my soapbox for a minute, I agree. I'm all about having more fungus in my diet, for sure. Rosita India.
3: And now for the big reveal.
4: But first, thanks this episode to the folks at Impossible Foods and Meaty and Tamalta Rodal and Rachel Santo. We have links to their products and their publications on our website at gastropod.com.
3: Thanks also to producer Sonia Swanson for all her work on this episode. And thanks to Eamon Ismail, We have a link to his Slate article. And finally, Eamon and his Jewish friend Leah made pork yoza and pork kofta, which is usually made with lamb. And maybe Eamon had built up a little too much anticipation around. Pork.
2: I mean, I've heard from many people that pork is like the best meat, and now that I know that I've that I've tasted it, I can kind of come back and say I don't really think that's true. Like, have you had lamb? Like, have you had goat? Have you had any of these like incredible things that we're like we love and we're used to making in all the our different Arabic and Jewish dishes? Like, uh, I don't know. Like, I think we we won't miss pork.